You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 90. Today, we're featuring Eric Loomis in his new book, Out of Sight, A History of Labor Struggles in Corporate Impunity. But first, the news. Last week, about 50 faculty members at the City University of New York system, including friends of the podcast Stephanie Luce, Corey Robin, Penny Lewis, and many others, were arrested committing civil disobedience outside of the administration's Midtown Manhattan building. The CUNY Faculty Union, the Professional Staff Congress, as we discussed recently with Alex Vitale, has been without a contract for five years, and there appears to be no decent end in sight. That Wednesday, they had received an offer that would give them a small raise that would not even keep up with the rate of inflation, which they rejected. The university has blamed its current fiscal condition for the small offer. Several hundred faculty members and supporters joined them for a rally, and then the group, wearing t-shirts that read, Five Years Without a Contract Hurts CUNY Students, sat down arm-in-arm in front of the building and blocked the doors until they were taken away by police. Stephanie Luce, in an interview posted at the Murphy Institute's blog that we'll link to on the Descent website, explained, I'm outraged at the idea that New York State and City have been reducing their commitment to CUNY, even when there's a state budget surplus and when CUNY's fundraising is at an all-time high. Tuition is rising, and students are increasingly required to pay for the basic operating costs the state and city once paid for. I wanted to express my support for a fair contract, but also defend the whole concept of fully funded and accessible public higher education. I'd love to see CUNY reduce its tuition and open its doors to more students. She also noted that the police who arrested them were very polite, and several of them were also complaining about their own contracts. The professors were charged with disorderly conduct and will go to court in December. In the meantime, the union continues to push and is planning a possible strike vote November 19th. It remains illegal for public workers in New York, including CUNY faculty, to go on strike, so we will watch that decision closely. On November 10th, workers in hundreds of cities yet again went on strike and rallied under the banner of the Fight for 15. This time, they had an especially militant overtone, as the effort was time to launch a year-long campaign uh, leading up to Election Day to foreground the issues facing low-wage workers. The events involved protests and strikes in several hundred cities, and they were also a celebration of recent Fight for 15 victories in Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco, which have hiked their minimum wages to $15, phased in over a period of years. And those initiatives have added momentum to growing campaigns to set statewide minimum wages in California and New York. The movement, backed by SEIU and other community and labor groups, has also propelled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to make some strides for the lowest wage workers in New York State by raising fast food worker wages to $15 an hour. And on Tuesday, he also announced a $15 minimum wage for about 10,000 state public sector workers. The demands of the Fight for 15 have so far been shot down by GOP presidential candidates, but Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders has declared full-throated support for dramatically raising the federal minimum wage, and, and even Hillary Clinton has followed suit with support for a base wage increase. However, it seems like most of the progress of the movement so far has come on the local level, with about 19 jurisdictions raising their minimum wages in recent years, uh, several of them to the full $15 an hour, and similar proposed wage hikes are pending in D.C. and Long Beach, and there have been other sector-wide minimum wage standards set for home care workers in Massachusetts and Oregon. 
One of the biggest contingents who turned out on Tuesday's protests were childcare workers. These workers typically earn poverty wages well below the median wage, uh, despite the amount of education and skill that's required to provide a foundational education for childhood development. And like the other sector that's turned out in force to support the fight for 15, home care workers, these service workers are among the most underpaid in the workforce, and they're also overwhelmingly female, not surprising. And they're bringing issues of health, education, and community development into the battle for livable wages and union rights. Right now, we'll hear from Dawn O'Neill. I spoke to her earlier this week before she went out to protest. She's a child care worker in Atlanta who's talking here about the burden she faces as an educator who can't make ends meet for her own family. At the end of the month, it never adds up. Never. It's never enough. Never enough for food. That's the one thing that we back up on a lot. And we usually have to shift things, uh, the electric bill, and kind of say, okay, well, we can't pay this this month. Maybe we can pay this next month. And then next month it gets higher because we haven't paid it, you know. So it's a struggle. Fifteen would help us out so much. But that's not only my struggle. It's my neighbor's struggle next door. You know, it's the people that live up underneath me. You know, that the mom, she has three kids and she works at Burger King. You know, her struggle, she's struggling to feed kids. They cut her food stamps because they said that she makes too much. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. She has three kids. And we shouldn't even have to rely on government assistance. You know, there's no reason for us to be working 40 to 60 hours a week and have to go back to the government and say, we need this. You know, if we were paid $15 an hour, we would be we would be able to take care of our children. You know, we would be able to feed our families. And not only that, we would be able to even put back to, into our communities. But here we are, and we're struggling, and we're making eight fifty an hour or $9 an hour, and we can't afford to take care of ourselves, let alone put anything back into our community. And so in these communities, you see that people that are poor, um, people automatically say, oh, well, they're violent, they're lazy, they don't want to do anything. No, we're working and we're struggling. But there are people that are hungry, there are people that are in need, there's people that are angry because they're working so much you know, they can't afford to spend time with their children because they're constantly working. And so then the children are left out there because there, there's, there's no guidance. And so, of course, there's going to be problems in the community. There's going to be violence in the community. If communities, if people are paid what they're worth, if we had a livable wage, if we had unions that we know would back us on these jobs, we would be able to spend more time with our children. We would be able to put back into the community. When it's time to go out and vote, we don't have to worry, oh, well, I can't even get off from work to go vote at the polls. You know, I I, I can't even get out. You know, I can't take the time off from my job to do anything, you know. And we're trying to rally up people to come out and vote. And if we vote, we know that we can change these issues. And if these politicians that want our vote, you know, they have to show us that they're backing what we're asking for. And that was Don O'Neill, an Atlanta child care worker, speaking about the fight for 15. 
In Southern California, meanwhile, where port truck drivers and warehouse workers have repeatedly struck against unfair labor practices and for better conditions, FedEx freight drivers in Gardena have undertaken what is reportedly the first strike against that company. 85 FedEx freight drivers went on strike Monday morning protesting unfair labor practices by the company, which they say has retaliated against their attempts to unionize with Teamsters Joint Council 42. The drivers have filed unfair labor practice charges with the NLRB, and in a statement, the Teamsters said that the company's decades of anti-union behavior aren't going to change easily, but the first strike at FedEx remains a pretty big deal. FedEx ground drivers recently settled with the company in California after a Ninth Circuit court ruled that the company had misclassified them as independent contractors, something regular podcast listeners will be very familiar with as I talk about misclassification pretty much all the time in regard to the aforementioned port truckers, as well as Uber drivers and other members of the sharing economy. Just another reminder that the sharing economy is not exactly reinventing the wheel when it comes to its business practices. In regard to the workers' current strike, driver Greg Barfus told reporters, We've been trying to unionize and they do everything in their power to intimidate us. Just recently, they called me into the office over a meeting about benefits and said I turned it into a union meeting, trying to scare me into submission so I'll be quiet. FedEx, no surprise, has blamed the strike on the Teamsters and tried to minimize how many drivers were involved, while at the same time threatening them with legal action. Some of the drivers have threatened to stay out through the holidays, which would make things very difficult for FedEx, so we will keep you posted. Last week, President Obama signed a new executive order to, quote, ban the box from federal job applications. The banning of the proverbial box prohibits employers from asking applicants to fill out a box disclosing their criminal conviction history. Advocates say this box needlessly deters otherwise qualified candidates who have been formerly incarcerated, and it also fuels the cycle of discrimination against people who have been involved with the criminal justice system, who, not coincidentally, are disproportionately of color. Applicants for federal government jobs for, from now on will not be asked about a criminal record until later in the review process. This is aimed at preventing workers from being deterred by the stigma surrounding the label of a criminal conviction. Though employers could still run criminal background checks on the job candidates later on, this disclosure would be delayed and it would thus give applicants a chance to explain their reasons for applying and their background and it would also be regulated by federal anti-discrimination guidelines. Overall, employment discrimination is a massive issue for formerly incarcerated people. According to recently updated Equal Employment Opportunity Guidelines, however, civil rights law actually protects these people from unfair bias. However, enforcement remains a huge issue, especially when there is the chilling effect of social stigma that deters people from even applying. The discrimination against formerly incarcerated people is also often seen as a proxy for racial discrimination, as it leaves many black and Latino people with criminal records, many of them for nonviolent drug-related convictions, disadvantaged and unable to obtain jobs that they need to rehabilitate and reintegrate into their communities after prison. Research shows that formerly incarcerated people who have been employed steadily after release from prison have returned to incarceration at a much smaller rate than the general post-release population. 
All that evidence aside, though, currently releases from prison are set to increase as sentencing policies ease and other reforms take place, and there is now rising public pressure to create just policy solutions for connecting people who've been locked up in the criminal justice system back into the mainstream workforce. Much more is needed, of course, than simply banning the box. That means comprehensive access to education for formerly incarcerated people and broader preventive measures for youth to keep people, especially youth of color, from getting trapped in the criminal justice system to begin with. So far, according to the National Employment Law Project, quote, more than 100 million Americans, roughly one-third of the U.S. population, live in a jurisdiction with a ban-the-box or fair chance policy. So there's been some progress on that front. This latest ban-the-box move by Obama is one small but nonetheless symbolic step towards so-called decarceration. Reducing employment barriers for formerly incarcerated people is a critical move to help reduce recidivism overall, but it's also a matter of economic justice, particularly for the communities of color deeply scarred by the cycle of incarceration. Eric Loomis is an old, old friend of mine and also a labor and environmental historian at the University of Rhode Island who's done extensive research into the ways workers fight for environmental justice, as well as the splits between the labor and environmental movements. He's got a new book out from our friends and office mates of the New Press called Out of Sight, The Long and Disturbing History of Corporations Outsourcing Disaster that is a concise history of how the outsourcing of labor and pollution has led to the crises we face today from the collapse of what we used to think of as the middle class in the U.S. to global climate change. This summer, I hosted Eric's book launch event, and today we're bringing you our conversation from that event. So I want to start out with... The way that the labor and the environmental movements are talked about in sort of the American media and often between one another presents this idea that these two things are at odds. Why is it so important in this book and in your work to talk about the way that the challenges both of these movements face are the same thing? Sure. I mean, basically, both the labor movement and the environmental movement have effectively a common enemy, and that's corporations, right? That corporations are seeking to lower costs in any way they can. That's the point of a corporation, to maximize profit. And so they're gonna do so in, in any number of ways, but that includes pressing down on workers and it includes pollution. It includes dumping things in the environment, not cleaning it up. And so they have a common enemy and, they, and in many ways they both know that. And there's a history in my academic work, my book that Sarah talked about is coming out from Cambridge, uh, it gets into this because uh, there was a long history, for instance, in the Pacific Northwest of loggers in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and even into the 70s trying to stand with conservationists in order to stop exploitative logging practices because the workers knew that this exploitative logging would destroy the trees and destroy their jobs. And the conservationists knew it would destroy the forest and also destroy those workers' jobs. And so there's a lot of commonality. But what happens is that beginning in the 1970s, again, these jobs in the US were disappearing. At the same time, in, uh, the environmentalists are succeeding and they're passing all this new legislation, like the, like the you know, creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, like the Clean Air Act, like the Clean Water Act. And so what employers begin to do 
even though they're planning on moving those jobs overseas anyway, and we know of many cases where the corporation is openly lying about why they're doing this, they tell workers, if you support this control on asbestos, if you support this new law that would limit how much we can belch into the air, we're going to move our factory to Mexico. And because it's the 1970s, the companies were already doing that. And so the workers are scared because the workers need to eat. They need to feed their family. They don't want nature to spoil because they go out, they hike, they hunt, they fish, they enjoy nature. And their good union contracts gave them the time and the money to enjoy that nature. But with that crumbling around them, workers really had a harder and harder time supporting environmentalism. And that's why today, with the Keystone XL pipeline, right, the controversial pipeline that would bring tar, uh, uh, oil sands from Canada to Texas, you have environmentalists outraged by this because of how it contributes to climate change. And you have some unions who are opposed to it. But you also have the major union that would, uh, that would gain from it, the laborers who would get these construction jobs, saying, how can we turn those down? Our members don't have work in this anti-union economy. We need those jobs. And so they then attack the environmentalists and the other union for not supporting it because their members need jobs. And so you know, both movements have a tremendous amount in common. And both movements need to unite in order to fight a constant enemy. But it's very, very difficult when you're telling workers, hey, you're going to have to sacrifice this job because they can't sacrifice that job because they need to feed their families. So you begin the book with the Triangle Fire. Um, and the famous people who saw that happen, including Frances Perkins, who became the first woman labor secretary. Um, and those people pushed for labor laws. And this is a great story, but it's also a story of reform from the top. And so for labor movement people like me, like some of you I know in the audience here, that becomes a hard story to hear because we also believe that the reform has to come from the workers within. And so why is it important that people outside of the workplace see what happens and get involved in these struggles? Sure. I mean, the thing to know about workers is workers are always struggling for better lives. Right? I mean, you know, that you, you have in 1909 the uprising of the 20,000, which I mentioned, and workers are on the streets and they're fighting, okay? But what has to happen, workers don't have enough power in this country to, to succeed on their own. They largely need some kind of middle class allies, specifically politicians, right, who are going to pass the legislation that is going to be needed to fix these problems. And so, you know, it, it's a tricky situation. Worker participation, worker activism, workers involved in the struggle, central to the struggle, is absolutely necessary for any of this to happen because politicians aren't going to do this by themselves. They're not going to do this unless workers are pressuring them. And after Triangle, you have workers around the country outraged by this. And so, you know, but what has to happen is that workers and, and other sectors of society have to be able to unite around these issues. And that's one of the problems I think you see today with, with organized labor is that a lot of the rest of society doesn't see organized labor as an important enough ally anymore, including a lot of people in the Democratic Party where that they're 
their you know base of support long long was and so you you know you really begin to see people begin to take labor for granted for instance and so you know basically what's going to have to happen i think <coughs> what is happening what's happening with the 5 for 15 for instance is, is that's what you see you see workers standing up and say we have these demands and this is what we want and we're going to put pressure on society to make this happen and politicians begin to cave and that's what happened after triangle and it's what happened in the New Deal when FDR just didn't pass this legislation out of the goodness of his heart. He passed it in part because hundreds of thousands of workers were going on strike in 1934 and scaring society that something really radical was going to happen. And you're seeing it again today. So on the other side, what happens when sort of visible disaster is the thing that we need in order to care? Right? So how, when you have sort of everyday problems of wage theft, of just low wages, of sexual harassment in the workplace, things that are not spectacular, how do we then get attention to those things? It's awfully hard. I mean, the power of video, the power of visualization is tremendous. And it happens in all sorts of ways. I mean, think about the Ray Rice incident, right? We know domestic violence is an enormous problem. Ray Rice, the NFL running back, was caught on video. Look at what's happening with the uh, look what's happening with Black Lives Matter. How much of that is being caught because because now with these video cameras, some of the and, and because everybody has cell phones and can and can and can record the cops doing stuff. How much of that matters? It's tremendous. The police have been victimizing African Americans since the African Americans arrived in this nation in 1619. Right? That's that, that legal discrimination uh, or, or de facto discrimination against African Americans is a constant. Video matters so much. And so, I mean, there, there's a certain amount that we can do without that. Um, but it sure helps to have video. And I think that this one thing that technology can bring us, right? I mean, you know, you could theoretically give, and I'm not saying we should be in this or this, but, you know, we can theoretically record conditions inside factories, inside a Bangladeshi factory that could theoretically be sent out via the internet. And in fact, you see the, to bring in the food issue, you see the agricultural industry really f fearful of this, right? Because the animal rights activists are getting jobs in these, in these factory farms and they're taking secret video of the horrors of how these animals are treated and that becomes a powerful piece of propaganda. And so the agricultural industry is trying to pass in various states so-called ag-gag bills that would make private uh, that would make private ownership of surveillance video inside these factories a crime. And if the agricultural industry gets away with this, why can't any other industry do it? They will. And so, and so keeping the access to visualization open is absolutely vital because it sure is a lot easier to make that change if people see what's going on. Because we might read something and, and, and you know, be like, wow, that's really sad. But to see horrors, most of us are good people. Most of us are moral people. Most of us try to make lives better. But it, it's easy to ignore things when your own life's going on. If it's in your face, it, it, it's much harder to ignore thinking of the, the recent, the leaked audio from these captive audience anti-union meetings. Sure, right? absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that begins to, you know, the idea that, you know, when people actually hear the sort of ridiculous things and intimidation tactics that happen when workers try to unionize and, and people record it, it really creates a lot of disgust toward the companies. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a piece of it. So in the middle of all of this, in the middle of your book coming out, um, we're facing this big fight over the Trans-Pacific Partnership and this fight, of course, takes up a lot of the issues that you write about in this book. So um, how does your book help us 
to prepare for stage two of that yeah. mess. And yeah, what should we be thinking about going forward? Sure. I mean, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, for those on the know, is 12-nation Trans-Pacific Agreement. Uh, that would be a, a, a trade agreement that is that, that makes it yet easier to outsource more jobs, but it also has a lot of other and arguably larger impacts, including, uh, including extended... Uh, 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 extended uh, patents for pharmaceutical companies so they can make more money, copyright protection laws that would also help corp American corporations, um, and perhaps most frightening, uh, so-called investor state dispute settlement courts that would effectively allow nations that are sign up in, in this agreement to sue company, uh, countries excuse me, or sue governmental functions that would, when they pass new legislation, that would potentially affect the profits of that company going forward. So, you know, the U.S. could pass a higher minimum wage, but if Malaysia, for whatever reason, wanted to sue us because Malaysian companies were investing in the United States, then the Malaysian, then the, then the, the ISDS court may force the United States to pay Malaysia, all of, the, of these Malaysian companies, all of that potentially lost profit. Now, much more likely it's going to be U.S. companies doing that to Malaysia or to Vietnam because it's going to be about power. But this is a real thing, right? This isn't just some conspiracy theory. You already see, for instance, a French company suing Egypt over a minimum a wage law using one of these courts. Philip Morris is suing Paraguay for pushing new anti-tobacco legislation because that's going to negatively affect Philip Morris profits. This is a real thing. And so I think that the one thing I would say about it, though, is that you know when we're thinking about solutions to this, um, the ISDS is a disaster, but we do need international law with accountability for corporations and countries in order to create the, the, the mechanism so that if you're exploited by Walmart in Bangladesh, you can sue Walmart in the United States. We need international law. And so one thing that the ISDS courts do, because in the book I suggest this international legal system, and one might argue if these ISDS courts didn't exist, oh, that's a pipe dream, but no. We're already creating that system. It's just there to help corporations, not to help the workers. And so I think that helping us think about in a globalized economy, globalization's not going away, right? How can we create the structures to create accountability and to help out workers or help out citizens if they're, if, if the, if, even if they're not workers, help out citizens if you know, these apparel companies are dumping dyes into their rivers and, and they're getting sick. How can we create that accountability? It's going to take international legal uh, regimes. And so I think that, um, as set up, the TPP is an enormous disaster. Uh, along with education, it's probably uh, President Obama's worst policy, from my perspective. I think it's deeply disturbing. Um, but silver lining, maybe we can build on some of these international legal agreements to try to think a way forward that would help out workers and citizens around the world. You're so optimistic. <laughs> what I'm known for. Yeah. Um, so in the book, you also write about the environmental justice movement, and I'll let you explain what that is, um, and the struggles by people who face a kind of outsourcing sort of right here at home, or like even right here in New York City. Um, and so, yeah, I want you to talk about a little bit about the way out of sight still functions in the within the United States, and the struggles of particularly communities of color against that. Right. So, I mean, corporate, what corporations want is not 
moving abroad per se. They want to maximize advantage. They want to maximize profit for many reasons that might mean staying in the United States. Okay, so you have many industries that are staying in the United States. Some of that is because they work in natural resources, and the natural resources exist where the natural resources exist, such as oil. Okay? Some of that might be companies, for instance, toxic waste management companies. Right? They get a contract from the federal government or from some uh, chemical company, let's say, to place toxic waste somewhere. Where are they going to place it? They're going to look around the nation. Do you want a toxic waste dump in your backyard? No, you don't. Who doesn't have the power to resist that? African-American communities, Latino communities, Native American communities, poor white communities in Appalachia. They, they, they consistently seek out intentionally these spaces, often in rural areas, sometimes in counties where it's majority white, but there's a, there's a small isolated community of Latinos, usually Mexicans, maybe sometimes Central Americans. Uh, sometimes it'll be in cities, whether New York or Albuquerque, where you have high uh, uh, populations of people of color. Uh, quite often it's the South. Okay? And so what happens is that you have an environmental injustice that goes on, environmental racism. And communities fight back against this. They do, right? I mean, the environmental justice movement really gets started in the early 1980s with, with communities of colors building off the civil rights movement saying, hey, wait, wait a minute. Why is my community being targeted for toxic waste? We should fight against this. And it continues, but it's hard because these are poor communities. They have to oftentimes attract outside allies, oftentimes environmental groups, and get their attention in order to fight for this because they have the lawyers and they have the money. And they're fighting against, you know, Royal Dutch Shell. They're fighting against ExxonMobil. These are billion, billion, billion dollar companies. So that's a very, very difficult fight. And so, you know, part of what's happening here is that out of sight really means separating consumers from the impact of production. So that when you go to the store, the, the meat, it just appears in a package. The clothes, they're just on the shelf. How do they get there? You don't want to know. And nobody's <laughs> going to make you know, right? Nobody's going to make you know. And so whether that's happening in Alabama or it's happening in Honduras, so long as you, the consumer, don't know, you're not going to do anything about it, right? And so that can often be here in the United States. And, and certainly a lot of that is foreign outsourcing. But companies are very conscious of where people have power and where they don't in this country, and they're citing factories specifically to take advantage of that. Um, so you mentioned the meat showing up in the grocery stores. Um, one of the chapters that, well, the chapter that struck me the most in this book was the food chapter, in which you sort of detail the way that, well, food is the ultimate globalizing uh, commodity, I guess, but also how capital mobility leads to migration, people who are coming to this country because of various things that happen where they're from, um, and how that ends up affecting conditions here, as well as all sorts of global sites of production. So yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about the argument that you lay out in that chapter, particularly in the way all of those things connect up. Sure. So you know, uh, 
food is something that obviously uh, matters to us tremendously, right? I mean, of all the of all the the industries that could have, that we might be active on around these capital mobility issues, a lot of it's food because food is something we put into our bodies on a daily basis. It's a personal experience, and in a kind of food culture that's developed in the United States, that's become more and more so, right? Um, and so we don't want to be poisoned. Right, we you know we want ethical production in our food to the extent that we're aware of it. But the story around food and these issues is actually much broader, right? Because it gets back to questions: Why do people from Mexico and Central America come to the United States? Now that's a complex answer, but a big part of it is that thanks to these global trade agreements like NAFTA. American companies are able to dump corn, because we produce so much corn, we're able to dump corn on the Mexican market. And it becomes cheaper in Mexico to buy that corn from the United States than from local farmers who are, all, who are on their land. And so these local farmers can no longer be, can no longer farm in this globalized economy. And this has happened for a variety of reasons. The Green Revolution, that, that, that input of of technology that created vastly more productive crops in places like India and Mexico, where it's where it's, it's pioneered in the 1960s, uh, does a lot. I mean, it, it saves people from starvation. I mean, it is an important thing, but it creates a high capital-intensive industry, so that it, unlike you, you know, uh, plowing rows with your donkey, you, you, that's not going to be able to compete anymore with carbon, right? Dumping corn on the market, and so these people lose their their ability to farm. And lo and behold, they become the migratory labor force for these factories that are, that are moving to Mexico because now these people need jobs, right? And so it's, you know, when people say, oh, you know, these people, these Mexicans, they need jobs, they should be grateful that American companies are coming down there. We also have to look about why that is. Why are they, why are they so poor? You know, and, and there's, for instance, you know, uh, in, in the southern state of uh, Mexico, Oaxaca, right now, there is a right to stay at home movement, a right to stay on the farm. People want to stay on the farms. Some don't, but they shouldn't they have the choice, right? Shouldn't they have the choice? And so what happens is that they're forced off their land, and they go to Mexico City. They go to the, work in the maquiladoras, you know, making uh, making products for the U.S. market. They cross over in the United States to service the agricultural and construction labor forces here. And so, you know, when we think about how dare they they cross the border, well, it's also in, in no small part our responsibility for them wanting to cross the border in the first place, right? Um, and so there's there's really complex issues uh, around this, and I could certainly uh, you know I probably have talked long enough on this answer, so <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop. But the, you know the, the food issue is tremendously complicated and uh, brings together a lot of these issues that that, that I talked about before. Yeah. Um, so climate change, which we've been making jokes about on Twitter all day because it's a million degrees outside, um, is often the ultimate out of sight issue, right? Like every time it's cold out. All the climate change deniers are like, it's cold, it's, it's, cold. it's global warming. Yeah. Um, right. And so, yeah, and, and we sort of often hear about it in terms of like polar bears and ice caps melting and not what it's going to do to you in Brooklyn. Um, but so we've also seen a lot of recent successes. I also live in New York, and there, we also managed to stop fracking coming to New York because a lot of people got angry that there was literally going to be a fracking well in their backyard. And so how do we get, I guess, more people who aren't necessarily going to have a fracking well in their backyard to understand that this fight is going to end up in all of our backyards? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's difficult. I mean, it's one of those messaging issues that's difficult because it's difficult. You know, it's hard to create a video of climate change that's going to motivate people like like Trump fire or like the Ray Rice case or like the like police brutality. Although I do love the video of the water coming into New York City subways during Sandy. Oh yeah, well that, I love that helps, I mean, right. I'm horrified by constantly. Right, right. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think that it's you know it, it, the messaging part of it is difficult, but I think the part of it is we have to understand that climate change is very much about us. And I feel that environmentalism, um, and I, you know, I'm a huge proponent of, of, of environmentalism. I think environmentalists do, do, do tremendous work, but there has been messaging issues over the last few decades, and for, for very good reasons, particularly around funding and fundraising, um, to fight against the corporate attacks on the legal system that, that these, these organizations need to raise money. And, and so they, they, what, what, gives, what, what convinces people to give to these, um, uh, to these funders? Well, a pretty picture of a polar bear cub works pretty well. But these environmental impacts are very much on, on humans. I mean, you know, it's 100 degrees today in Brooklyn. How many people don't have air conditioning in Brooklyn? A lot of people don't have air conditioning in Brooklyn, particularly older people, particularly poorer people, particularly people of color. You're going to have, for instance, much higher death rates in the summer from a lack of air conditioning. You're going to see much higher asthma rates because of cockroach growth, which is an asthma trigger. Right, and so these are these are issues that are going to very, very much affect humans as well as things like you know. You, but you would expect, for instance, the rising coastlines. You would expect Florida to be leading the way. Florida is going to disappear from the from the globe. It is going to be covered with water. Okay, but Floridians not only do they not do anything about it, but Florida Governor Rick Scott refuses to do anything about it, denying that it exists, even though Miami is getting flooded more and more every year. And so I don't have a good answer of how you make this happen. I mean, you just, you know, because the, you know, I, I think it's, yes, to an extent, better, better messaging about this matters, but you have such a highly funded co corporate campaign to ensure that nobody knows. Science is complicated. It's very easy to put doubt in people's minds. Okay? People don't have the time to follow the, the, the details of climate science. They have soccer practice with their kids. It's very easy to, 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 to ignore this or be confused about it. And ExxonMobil does a heck of a job making that happen. So yeah, that's, that's a really hard question. It's interesting because I also think one of the things, and I joked about you being very optimistic, but I, I kind of think that when what we hear about climate change is just doom, we turn it off. But the yeah. fact that you sort of give us this, here is a way to challenge this. Here is a way to move forward that, you know, it, it makes it easier to accept that, oh my god, this is horrifying. If it's horrifying, but we can do something about it. As opposed to, it's horrifying and we're all going to die, so we might as well just, you know, drink some more wine. Um, right. So yeah, I, I, you know, I've joked with you about being optimistic, but yeah, I want you to sort of talk about well, that. Look, I think that the conservative corporate lobby since the 1970s has been very successful at one thing which is convincing us the government doesn't work, okay? And they do so in a number of ways, right? Some of it through outright lying, but so it's also through a, an, an intended strategy of we'll make government not work, because we're gonna take it over and then make it run poorly, and that'll convince people that the government doesn't work, so then they'll trust us more to get rid of more government. But in fact, we cannot create effective change without getting the government on our side to make it happen, without taking over the government to make it happen. 
And we have, again, we have before, right? We passed a Clean Air Act. And you know what? If you walk the streets of Pittsburgh in 1950, you're gonna, it's, it's gonna be like Beijing today, right? Your life expectancy is going to go down because you're breathing in coal dust. If you walk the streets of Pittsburgh in 2015, it's a beautiful city. But you know, in the past, when Pittsburgh's looked like it has today and been so clean, never, okay? That's a wholly new thing. That's because government got involved and they cleaned up Pittsburgh and they forced the industries to quit polluting so much. You know how workers stopped dying so much at, on the job? It's because we created OSHA. And OSHA, as limited as it's been, and as much as conservatives have tried to crack down on sufficient funding of OSHA successfully, has reduced workplace safety problems. Because at least there's some chance of an inspection. The government is absolutely necessary. A well-functioning government that is, that is moving forward on these issues. So a, 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 an American government where climate change is an issue is an American government where we have made climate change an issue, where we've said we have to do something about this, and the only way it's going to happen is not going to happen by me driving less. That's a consumerist, individualistic thing. It's going to happen because the government gets involved and creates massive changes. We've done that before, and we can do it again, including on climate change. We may be past the point where, where you know, the climate is not going to change to some extent. But we are certainly well before the point where it's as bad as it could get. We can, we can do a lot to limit these changes. It's not going to be easy, but we can do it. But we're not going to do it without the government stepping in, being an activist government that is working for international treaties, cracking down on corporations, that providing real public transportation infrastructure in this country, dense living, afford it's affordable, all sorts of government programs that it could do. Because the government could, could do big programs very effectively. Look at the freeways, right? You can drive 70 miles an hour all across this country. It's an amazing thing. You can, that's a government program. It's very effective. Government can do that. But the corporations have told us the government doesn't work. And so that's part of it. We have to not only make government work, but we have to believe government can work. So you kind of foresaw my next question there, which is, you know, when we, it's okay, it's all good. It all flows very nicely. When we hear about a workplace disaster, an environmental disaster, something like that, I'm thinking of the recent New York Times story about nail salons. A lot of people's reaction is, well, I'm not going to go get my nails done anymore, right? Right, And as you just said, that becomes a very individualistic sort of whatever response that doesn't actually solve the bigger problem here. And this is a long-standing thing in this country where we have sort of learned not to think collectively and learned not to think politically about right. these things. Right. And so sort of what are the building blocks of thinking about political solutions, collective solutions that can actually tackle huge, terrifying things like climate change. Sure. I mean, I think that, that, that another way that corporations have been very effective is in making us incredibly empowered individuals. That we as an individual define who we are to the extent that, you know, our, our politics are kind of like, in many cases, they're kind of like our new tattoo, like we're showing it off to the world, and it's mine. It's my politics. I believe in this movement, and that movement, and this movement, and I don't really care about the other movement. It's about me. And you see that all the time. 
People who say, oh, I'm not going to support sweatshop clothing, I'm going to buy secondhand clothing. Well, that does nothing to solve the problem, right? <laughs> People who say, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to drive because of climate change, well, you know, and, and, but I'm not going to fight for, for collective action, it doesn't really do very much to solve the problem. The, the amount of carbon you're taking out of the air is so minimal that it really isn't doing anything but making you feel good. And the same with the nail salons, right? That what we have to understand is that it's okay to get your nails done. You have to demand that these nail salons are well-regulated, that workers are getting paid, that they're not living in hovels, that they're not you know, in forced labor contracts. And again, the government can do that, right? So we have to, be we have to believe the government can do well, and then we have to demand and force the government to do the right thing because they won't do it on their own because corporations right now control the government. So you have to move the government to work for us. We've done it before. We're seeing it again with the fight for 15 and minimum wage increases around the country, even in conservative states like Arkansas. It's popular. Sometimes people do believe the government can do good. And so we have to quit thinking about what can I do? Can I change my consumer choices? There are times when a consumer boycott is useful, and those times are when the workers themselves are demanding it. Okay? So there are cases where workers are saying, please boycott this product to support our to support our 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 our, our strike or our, our you know or our action. That's great. Support the workers, build collective power, help them build their power. But from us as consumers, we have to stop thinking about what I can do and start thinking about what we can do. If we don't start thinking about collective solutions, these things don't really get done. If we do start thinking about collective decisions or solutions and we start thinking about how can we make this happen in the political arena versus, like, I'm just not going to you know, buy new clothes, that's how lives get better for workers in Bangladesh. That's how things get safer at home in the United States. That's how we find climate change. You write a series on your blog on this day in labor history. You're a historian. Why is it important for you as a historian to write a book like this, to write for the general public? And why is it important for us to know that kind of labor history? Sure. That's a great question. I mean, I think that, you know, we can't understand the problems that we have today or the successes that we have today without understanding the history. And yeah, you know, I'm a history professor, so I want everybody to understand the history. <laughs> and you might say, oh, boring history, whatever. But we can't know why things went wrong. And we can't know why things went right without understanding how we got there. And in a situation today, I see 21st century America as a very similar in many ways to late 19th century America. Yes, we live better lives than thanks to our you know, union ancestors and people fighting for a better change, but our better lives. But similarly to the late 19th century, changes in capitalism have slapped us in the face and we don't know how to respond. At that time, it was the rise of the big industrial factory. Okay? And all of a sudden, huge corporations are here overnight and the promise of hey, I thought this system was going to work for everybody, or at least all white men, was going, what, where's mine? Where's control over my life? And it disappeared almost overnight. And that created decades of trying to figure out what to do. Should we ban immigrants? Will an eight-hour day fix everything? We didn't know, and it took decades for, to find out. I think we're in a similar situation today where overnight, 
we believed in the mid 20th century that this system of capitalism was working for us. We had union jobs, we had pensions, we had 40 hour weeks, we had vacations, and today most of that's gone. And we don't know what to do. What's going on here? We have no good answer yet. We're starting to work it out. So you see a movement like Occupy come up. Well, I think it's very interesting to put Occupy in a historical context of this, because there were lots of moments in that late 19th century where out of nowhere, Americans said, yeah, we've had enough of this, and we're going to fight back. And all of a sudden, there's a big social movement, and then it disappears quickly, okay, for various reasons. It's, 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 so people talk about Occupy as a failure. It's not a failure. It's a response to these changes that touched people where they live, and they demanded to, to, to make those changes. But we still don't know where to go. I think that looking at how Americans built a functional, safe, clean, non-polluted society in the 20th century is absolutely vital to understanding how we can do that both on a national and a global scale in the 21st century. And so I think that the study of history is absolutely, absolutely essential. And what I hope the book does, what I hope my labor history series does, is I recognize, sadly, not everyone's going to spend all their waking hours reading history, okay? <laughs> Unfortunately. But hopefully this book, my other writing, can give people a quick and dirty overview of some of the events and some of the information they need to know in order to say, hey, there are some similarities here. Hey, we can move forward. Hey, you know, what can we learn from the past to solve this problem? And so, you know, I, I don't have illusions that it's, you know, changing uh, the nation, but, you know, I hope that it influences some people to, uh, uh, to think historically about these current problems. And that was historian Eric Loomis of the University of Rhode Island talking about his new book, Out of Sight. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG, the portion of the show where we talk about things we recently read that we wish we had written but did not. And my pick for this episode is called Tricked and Indebted on Land, Abused or Abandoned at Sea. It's by Ian Urbina of the New York Times. In this piece, Urbina discusses the horrific case of one Filipino migrant worker who dies at sea under mysterious circumstances after disappearing into a shadowy network of human trafficking in Southeast Asia. While this is, on the one hand, a deep investigation um, into a global labor issue, it's also a cautionary tale of what trade globalization, that's right, the same kind of globalization that will be escalated in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, has done to human rights protections in the maritime sector and more broadly across the global economy. It's a story about how poor countries uh, let their people become human chattel for the world's most lucrative and environmentally destructive industries and how corporations get away with literally murder. Focusing on one staffing firm that is linked to Errol Andrada's death, Urbina writes, In episodes dating back two decades, the company has been tied to trafficking, severe physical abuse, neglect, deceptive recruitment, and failure to pay hundreds of seafarers in Indonesia, Mauritius, the Philippines, and Tanzania, 
and yet still its owners have largely escaped accountability. Last year, for example, prosecutors opened the biggest trafficking case in Cambodian history, but had no jurisdiction to charge Step Up, the company, for recruiting them. In 2001, the Supreme Court of the Philippines harshly reprimanded Step Up and a partner company in Manila for systematically duping them, knowingly sending them to abusive employers and cheating them. But still, Step Up's owners face no penalties. The rampant impunity in this one case study shows that these tremendous legal loopholes that enable huge multinationals to profit with impunity, including many firms based in the U.S. and Europe, have indirectly benefited in the worst possible way from liberalized trade regimes and massive corporate deregulation. But the story also speaks to the extremes that workers themselves are driven to in order to provide for their communities. With a lack of sustainable jobs in their home countries, they push themselves to take risky routes into black markets for fishery workers. And like migrants everywhere, many are forced into debt bondage, and their maltreatment is outsourced to middlemen who do the dirty work of wearing at their bodies while corporates on top reap the profits. As a result, Urbina writes, scofflaw ships cast off stowaways and deplete fishing stocks, violence is rampant, and few nations patrol the water, much less enforce violations of maritime laws or international pacts. In one of the most scathing scenes, uh, a woman gives an interview talking about how she became one of the marginal local women who played a small role in recruiting Andrada and others. She insisted that she knew nothing of what would ultimately happen to them. And she said rather naively, if no one has work, a job is something you share. And she goes on to say that she felt her role was simply, quote, helping the boys, not officially recruiting them. And that's what's so insidious about the whole industry, how the lines of complicity, criminality, and cruelty get blurred because impunity and deception starts at the top, trickles down, and spreads in every direction. The patterns on the high seas mirror the trafficking networks that are driving many Latin American migrants into the U.S., as well as from South Asia over to the rich Gulf oil nations. And this should show policymakers in Europe that there really is no distinction between so-called refugees and so-called economic migrants when it comes to the masses of people who are streaming into Europe every day looking for refuge. The migration that results from fleeing war and persecution stems from the same root causes as the migration of people fleeing massive poverty. All around the world, people go abroad because... They have the courage and the aspiration to reach for a life of dignity, and they refuse to remain trapped in a world of social and economic violence. The very least we can do is consider the story behind their migration. Protests have been going on at the University of Missouri for a while now, inspired by the movement in Ferguson and spurred on by racist harassment at the school. Black students, who make up just 7% of the school's student body, recounted facing blatant racism from racial slurs to a swastika painted in feces on a bathroom wall. The black students have formed a group, Concerned Student 1950, which references the year that black students were allowed into the university, and they've held increasingly escalating protests. Jonathan Butler, a black graduate student, has been on a hunger strike. Their demand has been simple. Get rid of the university president, Tim Wolfe. Then the football team get involved, and there are few better to write about political action by athletes than Dave Zirin at The Nation. In his first piece, Black Mizzou Football Players Are Going on Strike Over Campus Racism, Dave explained that the football team, which has 58 black players, refused to participate in any football-related activities until Wolf stepped down. The next day, Wolf was gone.
As Dave noted, the Missouri football team was where Michael Sam, who came out of the closet as gay before the NFL draft two years ago, had played. But this move was a new one and demonstrated just how much power the football team has. Uh, Dave wrote, quote, there is no football team without black labor. That means there aren't million-dollar coaching salaries without black labor. There isn't a nucleus of campus social life without black labor. There isn't the weekly economic boom to Columbia, Missouri, bringing in millions in revenue to hotels, restaurants, and other assorted businesses without black labor. The power brokers of Columbia need those games to be played. Yet if the young black men and there are white teammates publicly standing with them aren't happy with the grind of unpaid labor on a campus openly hostile to black students, they can take it all down just by putting down their helmets, hanging up their spikes, and folding their arms. We've talked on this podcast before about the attempts by college athletes to have their labor valued and to join unions, but these Missouri players have just demonstrated very clearly what kind of power they truly have to make demands. In a follow-up piece, Dave noted that President Wolf made $459,000 a year, which is quite a lot of money, except the team would have to forfeit $1 million just for missing one game this coming weekend. He noted... Quote, if there is a lesson here for student activists around the country, it should be to try to connect with so-called student athletes. Don't treat them like they exist in their own space. He concluded, the administrators created this world where our universities revolve socially, politically, and economically around the exploited labor of big-time football. Now let them reap what they sow. That's all for this week's Belabored. As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag Belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a child care worker or a FedEx driver, a professor, adjunct, or student organizer, college athlete, or if your job has been outsourced away. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, Visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>